Messiah. Um, we're just picking up where we left off uh, last week. Um, but last week the, we pointed out that uh, the Scriptures very clearly, the Old Testament Scriptures, very clearly define for us who the Messiah is going to be by listing over and over again different prophecies that the Messiah would fulfill so that we could narrow down the Messiah. Uh, we also saw that the Old Testament told us in, in several different places that the Messiah would be God incarnate. Very, very important. Something that uh, Iglesia Ni Christi, the, that non-Christian cult, they deny. Okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. The Mormons deny the unique deity of Christ. And, uh, and you know, the list goes on and on of groups that deny that Jesus is God incarnate. The Old Testament taught that he would be God incarnate and then told us who the Messiah would be. We found out last week that uh, he would be born of a woman. He would be the seed of a woman and he would crush the head of the serpent. So we knew that a human being would arrive on the scene and it's implied that he would be born without the agency of man. Okay, so the virgin birth is implied there. Genesis 12 told us he'd be of the seed of Abraham. And of course, the seed of Abraham is the nation of Israel. So we knew, okay, the Messiah is going to be an Israelite. And a little further, we saw that it was from the tribe of Judah. The twelve tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from that tribe alone, would come the Messiah. Okay? Also in that prophecy in Genesis 49, we find out the exact time frame when the Messiah is going to come. And uh, if, uh, if you weren't here last week, um, uh, Rory Weisinger, Rory, if you just raise your hand, he, he does all the audio cassette reproduction. You can order the cassette from him if you'd like, uh, because we don't have time. It took most of last week's message uh, to just explain how Genesis 49 points to 11 AD as the time when the Messiah would be in the, in the midst of the Jewish people, when the, the right of the Jewish people would be taken away from them. There's the right to sovereignty, the right to exercise capital punishment. In fact, the Jewish rabbis, we quoted from them during the time of Christ in 11 AD, when, the, when their right was taken from them by the Romans, their right to exercise capital punishment and to rule over their people in a sovereign manner, when that was taken from them, they began uh, to mourn and they said that, uh, you know, our, the right to rule has been taken from us and the Messiah has not yet come. Well, the right to rule had been taken from them, but the Messiah at that point was, uh, you know, between, uh, what, uh, four and seven years old and uh, was in their midst. Okay, and then we looked at uh, the, the fact that not only would be from the tribe of Judah, but from the line uh, of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11. And... Uh, and, and not only just from Jesse, Jesse had several sons, but it would be, Jesus would be, the Messiah would be from the line of David. Uh, and, uh, and two of the passages that talk about that also talk about his deity. And so he would be related to David, a son of David, a descendant of David. And then I believe we closed last week by looking at Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14, the prediction that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, okay? And we said that in uh, John chapter 8, when Jesus was debating the Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees, 
Uh, he was telling you guys aren't really true Jews. If you were true sons of Abraham, you would believe in me. But they got upset with him. They said, well, we were not born uh, in fornication, were we? And it's in, what they're implying is is that there's a rumor going around that Jesus was born of fornication. See, it was common knowledge that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Now, we know the whole story. We know that the reason why Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father was because Jesus did not have a biological father. And he was born of a virgin through the miracle-working power of God. Okay? Um, even in the ancient Jewish writings, when the Jews uh, in the Talmud wrote down the, after the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., between 70 A.D. and 200 A.D., the Jewish rabbis and the students of the rabbis began to write down the oral tradition, the spoken tradition that had been passed on from word of mouth from generation to generation by the rabbis that had been memorized by their students. Um, it, it's amazing. There are still some cultures that don't have writing, by the way, that memorize you know, information that would, would fill the Bible. And uh, some, some primitive tribes actually still, still do that with just brilliant, brilliant minds. And, uh, but whatever the case, the time of Christ, the rabbis passed the teachings on orally to their, their pupils, and then they would accept it, memorize it, and then pass it on to the next generation. And um, um, when you look in the Jewish Talmud, what we find... It was recorded between 70 and 200 A.D., but it dates back to the time of Christ that the Jewish religious leaders um, made all sorts of stories about Jesus claiming that he was illegitimate and um, uh, even speculating they, they made stories up about uh, him having a Gentile father just to, just to make him look worse. But there was a widespread vicious assault on the person of Christ, an attack of his reputation, uh, in that everybody knew Joseph wasn't his father, and so the enemies of Christ made up stories because of that. And uh, uh, by the way, you can see from Jesus' response in John chapter 8 that he did not uh, take that remark from the Pharisees very lightly. He... he uh, cranked up his argumentation a few notches at that point. And, uh, but whatever the case, it was predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Anybody who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, if he had a biological father that uh, played a role in his being born, then that guy automatically is disqualified from being uh, the Jewish Messiah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Basically they're saying this is an eternal person, so this person is God, but he is going to come from uh, Bethlehem. Now we don't have time to turn there, but in Matthew 2, I mean, this... this there was no debate about this. This was a prediction the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and the Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ knew it. Uh, 
so when the wise men are looking for this babe and he was no longer in the manger, now he's living in a house, um, they come to King Herod and they want Herod to tell them where the Messiah, where the, the Jewish Messiah is going to be born, this Jewish king. Because uh, the Messiah is the, is the rightful king, unlike Herod. Uh, well, Herod didn't want to give up his throne, so he figured, hey, if the Messiah's been born, I don't want him taking my throne from me. I'm going to have him killed. So Herod ended up sending for the, the Jewish religious leaders. They came. Jesus was probably about two years old, by the way, at this point. The Jewish religious leaders come before him. He says, well, where's the Messiah going to be born, and where's he going to live in his early years? And without blinking an eye, they said, Bethlehem. And they quoted this passage. Okay, now keep in mind, some of those Jewish religious leaders are still alive, what? 30 years later. And all of a sudden, the carpenter from that miracle worker is walking the streets and giving sight to the blind and healing the lame, performing miracles, multiplying food, raising the dead. And I'm sure some of these religious leaders probably thought back and thought, man, I thought we killed him. I thought by giving the information to Herod, I thought Herod killed our rival when he was just a baby. Somehow this guy slipped through the cracks, and here he is, a grown man. Now what are we going to do? And so that set in motion the next conspiracy to kill the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. Um, but this was widely recognized by ancient rabbis as telling us that the Messiah, whoever he is, when he is born, he will be born in Bethlehem. Um, look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Where we could spend, we could actually spend 30 messages just on this one passage. But even, as you hold that page, um, Isaiah 40 verse 3 tells us that the Messiah would be preceded by a man who would proclaim God's truth and prepare the hearts of the Israelites for the Messiah, and he would do this in the wilderness. There would be a guy, in the, a voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Prepare the path. You know, basically, it echoes back to when ancient kings, you know, they didn't have roads back then. I mean, you just, you just walked on dirt and rocks, okay? And, uh, but whenever the king was going to visit your town, they would get out there and they would pave in the dirt. They would basically flatten it and prepare uh, a road, a highway for the king's chariots to go through. And so that's, that's what John the, John the uh, Baptist was saying, was, look, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. Prepare the path to your heart for him. Repent. Turn from your sin and get ready because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, prophesied for thousands of years. He is now alive and well, living in Israel. And he is about to make himself known to us. And then when Jesus did make himself known by coming to John for baptism, and God said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove, 
Uh, then John knew who he was, so he was able to point him out to his followers and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the millions upon millions of lambs that were slaughtered uh, as a sign to God saying that we know we're sinners, we can't save ourselves, innocent bloodshed must atone for our sins, please send the Messiah to die for us. And now John the Baptist could look at Jesus and point and say, that's him. He's the one. He's the one. And John the Baptist was like us. When he was in prison and about to be executed, he started to doubt. And he sent messengers and said, hey, you know, he sent his followers to Jesus and he said, hey, are you the one? John wants to know, are you the one or should we wait for somebody else? Okay? And, uh, and what did Jesus Jesus quoted scripture for him and said, look, hey, the lame walk, the blind see. Just tell John that. And they went back and told John, so John was pretty honest and said, yeah, yeah, this is the Messiah. And that's a good object lesson for us because John the Baptist had his vision. You turn on a Christian station, everybody wants to base everything, all their religious beliefs on, on some vision they think they have. Well, John had a real vision, but he was still doubting. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't focus on that experience that John had, but turned him to the scriptures. And said, John, the lame are walking the blind sea. You tell me who I am. And so John could die in confidence knowing that his eyes had beheld the Lamb of God, the Jewish Messiah. That he had the privilege of being uh, the ultimate prophet who could other than the Messiah himself, of course, but the prophet who had uh, the privilege of introducing uh, the Jewish people to none other than the Jewish Messiah. And so his forerunner, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, very complex prophecy. Entire books have been written on this. Um, it talks about 70 weeks that were decreed for the nation of Israel and the holy city, Jerusalem. You know, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to finish sin, to put an end to sin, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to cover iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This tells us several things, okay? Um, one thing is that vision and prophecy, if God, those are the exception, they're not the rule, but if God does choose to speak to us today, He can still do it. It's not going to be uh, sealed up until when? Uh, until these 70 weeks are completed. They're not yet completed, okay? Um, but basically what this is talking about, when is the nation of Israel, when will her sins have been forgiven her? When will that point come when everlasting righteousness will be brought in and the holy place, the temple, will, will be anointed of God in its fullest sense? Now the answer is that will only occur when the Jewish Messiah returns and reigns on earth for a thousand years, okay? So basically what it's saying is there's going to be 70 weeks decreed uh, until 
the Messiah comes and reigns on earth for a thousand years. That he's yet to do that, okay? Jesus has not returned to do that at this point. The second thing is uh, literally in the Hebrew, weeks means sevens. There will be seventy sevens. Uh, in the Hebrew language, you could have a week of, of seven days, but you can also have a week of seven years. And uh, I, I don't believe from my, my limited studies in the Hebrew that one is more common than the other. When you say 77s, when the Hebrew says 70 weeks, um, or X amount of weeks, it could be either weeks of days or weeks of years. The context is going to determine. Two things tell us that this means 70 weeks of seven years apiece, which means 490 years. One is, uh, I believe this chapter begins um, uh, talking about 70 years. So the whole context of this passage is a discussion going on about years. So it seems like it would uh, be confusing to just then say 77, 70 weeks and not tell them that it's weeks of days when you just got done talking about years. So that's number one, the context. <laughs> number two, if it's uh, 70 weeks of days, you, you, know, you, you find out when they tell you to start this, the, the clock here and you run it out and there was nobody uh, who even comes close to meeting the qualifications of the Jewish Messiah. When you switch this to uh, 70 weeks of years, which I think the context demands anyway, after 69 weeks, we're told here, um, just, just look at 25 and 26. Basically what I'm getting at is it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever in this prophecy if it's 70 weeks of days. But if it's 70 weeks of years, 490 years, it pinpoints the exact time. In fact, uh, J. Allen McLean, a great uh, uh, Bible scholar, even argued in one book that he devoted to this topic alone. And uh, it's amazing the amount of math he got to do in this too. But, uh, uh, but basically, he argued that he gave us the exact day when the Jewish Messiah would make himself known clearly as the Messiah, basically he argued it takes you to the exact day of the triumphal entry when Jesus uh, went in through the eastern gate uh, into Jerusalem and accepted the people's worship as they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means saved now. Um, whatever the case, verses 25 and 26, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the uh, uh, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Um, basically, that decree was given, it's, it's, it's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. I can't remember the exact date, it was something like 444 B.C. when the order was given. Uh, to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, and it, it says that there's going to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, okay? Um, and then Messiah, the Prince, will come. So basically, you have 483 years from that decree. Now, you have to change the days because we're dealing with 365-day years, 
but also 360 day years. Another weird thing that people just, it, it just it, it bothers my mind why we do it this way, but basically when you go from 1 BC to 1 AD, see we don't have a year, 0 AD. Okay? So when you go from 1 BC to 1 AD, that's only one year, so you got to subtract a year, and then you got to take the 360-day biblical years and translate them into 365 days, and then you got to figure out, take the Jewish calendar and figure out exactly when this decree was given, and then translate that into our modern calendar, and it's just a whole lot of math, and that's why guys wrote entire books on it. But when everything's said and done, it puts you right about, uh, you know, there's a few... Some would, some would debate a little bit of the math, some would debate exactly what decree they're talking about, but it puts you between, eh, probably between 28 and 33 AD, okay? So, I mean, there's no debate about it. We're talking right about the, the last days of the Lord Jesus, okay? Um, and, but then after these 69 weeks, uh, it says, then after the 62 weeks, which are after the 7 weeks, so it's after 69 weeks, so after 483 weeks, which puts you in the last days of Christ's um, uh, life on earth, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The time will come with the flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, let, let me say this. Um, the people of the prince who is to come, they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. That, that was basically uh, the Romans. They came and demolished the city in 70 AD. So you have this prophecy takes us right up to the, the last week of Christ's life. The Messiah has come. It pinpoints the exact day when the Messiah is going to reveal himself in the fullest sense. Okay? Um, and if they want, you know, Jesus would heal people and then tell them, don't tell anybody about, about who I am. And, but then when you come up with a triumphal entry, man, he is just blatantly letting people know, I am the Messiah. Okay? Um, and so, after these 483 years, which pinpoints the, the, the exact time that Jesus was to be crucified and all, it says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and then the city's going to be destroyed. The city was destroyed 17 years. What is basically what the, what verse 26 is telling us is there is a gap. There's 70 weeks that are decreed for the nation of Israel. The first 69, after the first 69, the Messiah will reveal himself. But then he's going to be cut off. 40 years later, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed 70 A.D. And there's an unknown gap. And then in verse 27, you'll have to read this when you get home. Uh, the prince who is to come, who I believe is the Antichrist, is going to make a peace treaty, a firm covenant with the people for one week. That's the 70th. In other words, the 70th week is still future. The final seven years have not yet come. It's called the tribulation in the scriptures. Okay? Um, and, and there'd be some debate about whether the tribulation is all seven years or just the last three and a half years or whatever, but there is a seven-year period of time yet to be fulfilled here, and there's a gap. And most, uh, most Bible scholars, especially end-time prophecy scholars, will call that gap the church age. Okay? Um, but whatever the case, uh, what we are being told here, you, you need to be a very good theologian, a very good Bible scholar, 
and a very good mathematician to figure out the exact day that this is talking about with Jesus. J. Allen McLean is every one of those things. However, you don't need to be a great mathematician, a great theologian, or a great Bible scholar to realize if it's saying nothing else, it says at least this. This is one of the most clearest things it says, that the Messiah is going to be executed. He's going to be cut off and have nothing. He's not going to leave descendants. He's going to be cut off and have nothing, okay? And then the city is going to be destroyed. Well, when was it destroyed? 70 AD. And in other words, what I'm saying is one of the most obvious things that this passage teaches us. So there's a lot of complex things. But one of the most obvious things that this passage tells us is that the Messiah, whoever he is, he's going to be executed before 70 AD. And that's important when we come back to that, uh, the, the, this later on. Because later on I'm going to show you, you don't need all 24 of these prophecies to prove. Especially if you believe the Old Testament is God's Word. If you don't believe the Old Testament is God's Word, and you see that all these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and then the many prophecies about cities and kingdoms and empires that the, that, that the, the, the Scriptures made that were fulfilled, uh, if you don't believe the Bible is God's Word, that ought to make you a believer real quick. And if you don't believe because of that, then you're just going against the evidence. But whatever the case, if you already believe the Old Testament is God's Word, um, there's really only about three prophecies you need to put together, and you can prove, no if, what's, or buts about it, that Jesus of Nazareth alone is qualified to be the Jewish Messiah. And we'll see that. In just a few minutes. Okay, so he'd be executed before 70 A.D. And obviously Jesus was executed somewhere between 26 and 36 A.D. Why do I say that? Well, you know, Bible scholars used to, uh, Bible critics, I should say, used to say, oh, this is a fairy tale. That really happened. I don't even know if Jesus lived. In fact, nowhere recorded in history that this Pontius Pilate ever lived. And then they found secular writings where they mentioned Pontius Pilate as the Roman governor. And then in 1961, they found a pillar with his name inscribed and identifying him as the Roman governor. But then it also gave the dates when he reigned. Now, of course, in, you know, 26 AD, they didn't call it 26 AD. So they gave the dates in a different manner. But when you translate those dates, even what even the Bible critics have to admit now, is that Pontius Pilate reigned as governor. From 19, we found out in 1961, when I was one year old, um, Pontius Pilate reigned as, as uh, Roman governor of the Palestine area um, from 26 AD to 36 AD. Okay? So let's not talk about fairy tales. Let's talk about recorded history, reliable recorded history, and uh, the fact that... Uh, Jesus died somewhere in that time, and obviously that's before 70 A.D. Um, Isaiah 35, we don't have time to turn there, verses 4 and 6. It, it tells us that the Messiah is going to make the lame walk. He's going to make the, 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 the dumb able to talk. Uh, he's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to perform miracles. And this would be a sign that he is the Messiah. Kind of, he, he's doing it. What Jesus was doing was he's giving people. When he said the kingdom of God is in your midst, what he's basically saying is, I am the king, and wherever I am, the kingdom of God is there with me. And now you, you, the Jewish people, if you accept the kingdom, the kingdom of God will come right here and now. 
Um, but Jesus was giving a foretaste that every time he healed somebody, even if he heals you today, he's giving you a foretaste of the millennial kingdom where there will be no more pain and no more sickness for those uh, who trust in the Lord. And, uh, but whatever the case, this was the passage that Jesus gave to the followers of John the Baptist when John the Baptist began to have doubts when he was in prison. He quoted this passage. And he's basically saying, was, uh, John, uh, who's he talking about? Just look at that passage. He's talking about me, John. The Lord Jesus alone fulfilled that passage. Another proof that he is the Jewish Messiah. Also, that he would teach people in parables. He would tell stories, fictitious stories, um, that would have a spiritual truth behind it. He would teach people, speak to them in common language, and speak to them in stories and parables. Psalm 78, verse 2, and we know that about Jesus. In fact, when we get done this, our study on proof that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and next week and the weeks to come, we're going to be talking about the kingdom parables of Jesus. So we're going to talk about some of those parables in Matthew 13 that Jesus spoke about. But his miracles, his parables, fulfilled by Christ. Uh, he'd be rejected by the Jews. The entire, look at the book of Isaiah. The entire Isaiah chapter 53, the entire chapter there, talks about the fact that the Messiah, whoever he is, when he comes, he'll be rejected by his own people, by the Jewish people. Okay? Um, we don't have time to read that entire chapter. Uh, so what we're going to do is look at a few smaller passages that say the same thing. Look at uh, Isaiah um, 65, 1 and 2. 65, 1 and 2. God is speaking. He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Well, who, weren't look who were the people that were not looking for the Jewish Messiah? He's talking about us, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Okay? I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I. Here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. He's saying to the Gentiles, okay? So the Gentiles, he'd receive a wide Gentile following. And in verse 2, uh, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. And he goes and talks on them further and further. And the whole context of the book of Isaiah makes it real clear. He's talking about the nation of Israel. The guys who knew better, the nation who knew better, they're the ones that were supposed to be waiting for the Jewish Messiah simply because he was their Messiah. And simply because their book, their Old Testament, God's Word told them the Messiah would come. They rejected him and God said, fine, I'll get a wide following from the non-Jews, from uh, the Gentiles. Um, Isaiah 8, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 13 to 15. Um, he says, it, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. 
But to both the houses of Israel, that's Israel to the north, Judah to the, the south, the whole nation of Israel, he would become this, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, and they will fall and be broken. Uh, they will even be snared and caught. Basically what he's saying is, the Messiah when he comes is going to be rejected by his people. Some Jews like the apostles, okay, and uh, the thousands that they led to Christ, some Jews would accept them, but most of the nation of Israel would reject them. The Messiah would become a stumbling block for the nation of Israel because he would be rejected by his own people, by his own nation. He'd be rejected, the Messiah, whoever he is, would be rejected by the Jews, yet he would receive a wide acceptance by the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. Well, we already saw that, by the way, in Isaiah 65, uh, 1 and 2, that the people who weren't looking for him, the Gentiles, will accept him and follow him, but the Jews will reject him. So the Messiah, whoever he is, will be rejected by the Jews, but will receive a wide acceptance by the non-Jews, by the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Um, I will also make uh, you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It sounds almost like he's talking to Isaiah, but as you study it more and more, you find it becomes very clear he is talking about the Jewish Messiah, the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, the true anointed one of God. And here he says that the Messiah is going to be a light to the nations. Okay? He is going to have a vibrant ministry to the Gentiles. Now, um, let me just run through so, some more of these, give you a little bit of an overview of some of these other uh, but just remember, the Messiah is going to be executed before 70 A.D., rejected by the Jews, wide acceptance by the Gentiles. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, tells us he, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The Jews were going to reject the good shepherd, pay him what they thought he was worth, 30 pieces of silver, and then later on they're going to fall to the, accept the worthless shepherd, uh, Zechariah 11:17, who is the Antichrist himself. Um, but he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be forsaken by his disciples. Zechariah 13, verse 7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter. Okay? And, and the apostles did forsake him at first. Um, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey and receive a king's welcome. Zechariah 9, 9. Now let me tell you, it is easy to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, right now you might, you know, the traffic might be heavy. But back then it was easy to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. But it was not easy to ride a donkey into Jerusalem and then to be treated as the king. Palm branches laid before the donkey's feet and people screaming out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from this passage. Okay, so basically he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people would spontaneously acknowledge him as the Jewish Messiah. It only happened once in history. Lots of guys rode into Jerusalem on donkeys, but only once in history did people do that. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
um, lots of times people were baptized in the Jordan River, but only one time the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit came down on the baptized one um, like a dove and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. Okay? Fulfilled by Christ. Um, by, by the way, verse 10, same prophecy of Zechariah 9, says that uh, this, this one, this Jewish Messiah, is also going to reign over the entire earth. And that's yet to come. That's when the Lord returns. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 7, tells us that the Messiah, when he's on trial, will be silent before his accusers. And he was. He did not argue on his own behalf because he was sent from the Father on a mission to die for us so that we who deserve the flames of hell could receive heaven. Psalm 22, verse 16, uh, the Messiah would be crucified. They pierced my hands and my feet. That same Psalm 22, verse 18, lots would be cast for his garments. Okay, and we see that in the New Testament that happened to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Psalm 34:20 predicted that the Messiah, none of his bones would be broken. As bad as Christ was beaten, none of his bones were broken. And then, uh, when they came to break his leg, you know, you break a guy's leg when he's hanging on the cross so he can't push off, and then he dies within minutes because he can't breathe. Um, they came to break Christ's leg, and he was already dead, probably due to the scourging, the horrible scourging that occurred before that. The other two guys on the crosses weren't, uh, weren't scourged. Uh, before they were crucified, so they broke their legs, but they pierced Christ's side just to confirm that he was dead. Okay? Um, but they didn't break his leg, and that's very important because Psalm 34:20 tells us that uh, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, none of his bones will be broken, and it's also important because of Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 46, about the Passover lamb. Okay? In order to qualify as a Passover lamb, you couldn't say, well, let me just take this lamb. He's got a couple broken legs. He's not doing me any good. He's holding up the flock. Let me just take him a second. And God said, no. To be the Passover lamb, he can have no broken legs and no blemishes. And the Lord Jesus was without blemishes. He was without sin. And they did not break his leg. He was without broken bones. If they had broken his leg, he would have, it would have disqualified him from being the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul identifies Jesus as our Passover lamb. Okay? Um, his bones would not be broken. And by the way, it was the Passover lamb. It was when God was striking dead, sent an angel to strike dead the oldest, the firstborn son in every Egyptian household. But the Jews who sacrifice in obedience to God, sacrifice the Passover lamb, take the blood, apply it on the doorpost, the angel would see the blood and would pass over their house for judgment. The ultimate Passover lamb is the Lord Jesus. Because the blood of the Lord Jesus has been applied to my life, because I trust in Jesus alone for salvation, and has been applied to Harry's life, and Charlene's life, and Stella's life, okay? Because we have applied the, the blood of the Passover lamb in our life, we too will be passed over for judgment. The Lord Jesus uh, it's our Passover lamb, and therefore none of his bones could be broken. And then, because his bone wasn't broken, they had to pierce his side to confirm that he was dead. Zechariah 12.10 12, predicted that the Messiah's side would be pierced. Um, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53.9. Even though he would be executed among criminals, 
we will receive a rich man's burial, buried in a rich man's tomb. The tomb, we, we know the guy's name, Joseph Arimathea. Took a tomb that had never been used before and, and had Jesus' body brought there, a nearby tomb. Of course, uh, uh, Jesus uh, ruined many funerals in his day by raising the dead, and he ruined his own funeral uh, by raising from the dead as well. And three days later, that tomb was empty. And uh, so, uh, you know, the founders of other religions, Joshua Dow and many others have pointed it out. You can visit Muhammad's tomb, Confucius's tomb, and, and still got the guy's remains, whatever left of it. But uh, when we visit the tomb in Jerusalem, uh, we visit an empty tomb. Because our king conquered death. Because our king is not there. Because our king is victorious. He defeated our greatest enemies, sin and death. Uh, so he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be resurrected. King David said God would not, in Psalm 16.10, God would not allow his holy one to see decay. Well, Peter preaching in, in the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 2, he says, now wait a minute, David couldn't have been speaking about himself. We visit his tomb. You want to go look at his bones? Go ahead. He sure did decay. But he was talking about the true anointed one of God. That God would not allow His Holy One to see, de to see decay. Uh, he would be raised from the dead. The ascension is predicted as well. That the Messiah would not only come to earth, but would ascend to heaven. Psalm 68, verse 18. And then finally, in Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, he would be accepted at the Father's right hand. Symbolic language. We give him the position of honor and ultimate sovereignty and authority in the universe. When the Lord said, Psalm 110, verse 1, King David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, do I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Adonai. Two different names for the one God. Yahweh said to my Adonai. And Jesus referred to that passage to prove he was God. The Jewish religious leaders, he said, he said, let me ask you something about the Messiah. Whose son is he? And he said, David. And Jewish, Jewish thought, your father is greater than you. Because he was older and he can date back farther. So he's worthy of more honor than you. So if the Messiah is the son of David, a descendant of David, David should be greater than the Messiah. So Jesus said, well then how come David calls him Lord? He's talking about Psalm 110, verse 1. If the king of Israel... The mightiest king on the whole planet Earth refers to anybody as his Lord, his Master, by definition. He's talking to God. And, uh, and that was, it, it blew the Pharisees away, except from that point they didn't question him anymore, which was a pretty good idea on their part. But uh, whatever the case, when the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet, God the Father is basically saying to God the Son, I have accepted your work. I have accepted your sacrifice for the sins of mankind. I am going to let you sit in the ultimate position of authority in the universe. You will sit at the Father's right hand. Now let me say this in closing. We, we uh, went through 24 different prophecies fulfilled in the Old Testament by the Lord Jesus. You can find hundreds more. There are hundreds more. I just wanted to find 24 for ones that were very clear. Um, the Old Testament was written between 2000 B.C. and 400 B.C. Okay? So, I mean, it was completed 400 years before Jesus walked the earth. 
Now, even if a liberal critic doesn't accept that, doesn't accept the, the traditional dating, which he's mistaken to, to uh, reject it, but even if he does that, he still has to admit that 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus walked the earth, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament already existed. So what I'm saying is, even liberal critics who reject that the Bible is God's word, they have to admit that the Old Testament was completed by the latest 200 years before Jesus walked the face of the earth. Now, I think there's good evidence that it was actually completed 400 years before he walked the face of the earth, but the latest possible date you can get for the completion of the Old Testament is 200 years. And uh, so what are the chances of somebody uh, fulfilling numerous prophecies that were given before his birth? Uh, Norman Geisler figured out that the chances of Christ fulfilling just 16 prophecies, now we looked at 24, but maybe uh, your next door neighbor denies miracles, so take out some of the miracle ones, limit it down to 16, the chances of Christ fulfilling just 16 prophecies by coincidence are one, one chance in 10 to the 45th power. Basically that means one chance in, uh, in and the number would be a one with 45 zeros after it. I can't give you the name of that number because we don't have a name for a number. We don't count that high. We have no need to count that high. Basically what I'm saying is, if he fulfills you 16 prophecies, it's proof, period. But let's just say we're talking to the Jews who accept the Old Testament as God's Word. All you need, if you believe the Old Testament is God's Word, okay, all you need are just three prophecies, the ones I've listed, prophecy letter K, letter L and letter H, just these three prophecies alone are sufficient to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Why? Because whoever the Jewish Messiah is, there has to be somebody who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah but was executed before 70 AD, was rejected by the Jewish people, yet he received a wide Gentile following. Now as far as I'm concerned, I don't know of anybody in the history of mankind that fulfills those three qualifications other than Jesus. Okay? I mean, let, let's face it. Uh, think of some guys, just pretend the guy, there was a guy who claimed to be Jewish Messiah, the Jews rejected him, he was executed before 70 AD. Whoever he is, you don't find churches all over the nations of the world, all over you know, Gentiles worshiping, coming together on Sundays or whatever other day and worshiping the guy. There's only one that received one man who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, was executed before 70 AD, rejected by...